so dynamic, so magnetic, so effervescent, so full of energy and vitality. Is it Herman? No. Is it Sherman? No. Is it Eddie? Is it Freddie? Oh, no, no, no. Is it Hart? Is it Schaffner? Is it Marx, perhaps? Oh, you'll never, never guess it. Don't snap your cap. It's just Miss Judy Garland. Here's the little gal who's earned a number one priority in your pinup department, both in your barracks wall and in your heart, Judy Garland. Clang, clang, clang went the trolley. Ding, ding, ding went the bell. Zing, zing, zing went my heart strings. From the moment I saw him, I fell. Metro-Golden-Mare turned the Wizard of Oz into a screen classic and a lovely little singer into a star. One of the most talented stars of Hollywood, Judy Garland. Someday I'll wish upon a star And wake up where the clouds are far behind me Where troubles melt like lemon drops Away above the chimney tops That's where Here's a five-foot-two package from home, Judy Garland. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year all our troubles will be out of And now may I present one of the most charming and talented members of Hollywood's younger generation, soon to be seen in The Wizard of Oz, MGM singing sensation Miss Judy Garland. It was like a breath of spring, I heard a robin sing, about her nest set apart, all nature seemed to be in perfect harmony, sing when the string. Hey everyone, this is Mindy. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Old Time Radio. As you may have noticed, we have a new musical introduction, courtesy of Buck and his editing prowess. I thought it was a great collection of snippets from Judy's singing career and people introducing her, so thank you very much for that, Buck. Next up in the Judy Garland series is her appearance on Good News of 1938. This was broadcast on April 14th, 1938, and it features three different songs from Judy. Her first song she sings is a duet with Fanny Bryce, who is in her Baby Snooks role. And confession, I am not a fan of baby talk. I detest it. <laughs> so this song called Why? Because is a back and forth between Judy and this Baby Snooks character, and it grates my nerves, but... They, both ladies do a fine job with what the, the song requires of them. Then Judy comes along and about 10 minutes after that uh, with a song called College Swing. And it's more up-tempo and what we totally expect to hear from her at this part in her career. And then we get to this interesting song called Crying for the Carolines. It, this song gives me chills. I've listened to it a dozen times now. It blows me away because I've never heard her sing it before. I never heard anyone sing this and I've never seen it on any compilation of hers. So I, it was completely out of nowhere. I didn't, I didn't expect what I heard for me to have her start off doing something a little more kind of age appropriate for her, maybe slightly younger than 
she was she's about 15 here to it's like a time warp by the time we get to crying for the carolines it's it's this womanly voice it's, there's so much yearning and expression and passion there just knocked me sideways i absolutely love that song and that's about three quarters of the way into the program so look forward to that and if you're inclined to leave comments let me know what you thought of the song or if you knew anything about it i i had no idea and like I said, this was broadcast in April of 1938. If you rewind to December of 1937, there were two major things that happened that would change Judy's career. The first one had nothing to do with her. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves opened, and of course this is the Walt Disney animated classic. It was a huge success and completely shocked the movie industry because apparently Walt Disney was the only person who had any foresight that a Brother Grimm's fairy tale could translate into big box office and really capture adults' attention and interest. So when this came out, it was an enormous shock and success and the movie studio started clamoring for fantastical storylines and, and things that could be eye-popping and of course the Wizard of Oz was front and center in everybody's mind. MGM was never really in a position to lose that as an option to produce and so but they made sure they locked that down very quickly after the success of Snow White. The second thing that happened was the release of Thoroughbreds Don't Cry, and this is the first movie where Judy was paired with Mickey Rooney, and as most of us know, that became kind of a legendary Hollywood duo. There was a great amount of positive feedback for these two, and so what that kind of did was solidify for MGM that Judy had screen presence, she had chemistry with co-stars, she had an audience that would support her in the starring role of The Wizard of Oz, because this was going to be a huge money-making potential but also a huge amount of money up front that had to be piped in the the movie. And so for quite a long time, they were scouting Shirley Temple, trying to see if they could get 20th Century Fox to release her to come over to do this. And there was a lot of support for Judy, but there were some kind of upper big wig money controller types that said, you know, she's not surefire, but this thoroughbreds don't cry. It basically was her calling card and saying, you know what, I can do this. And they totally at that point said, we have our Dorothy. So thank goodness for that. But because there was pre-production delays of The Wizard of Oz, even MGM went ahead and wrote her a part in Mickey Rooney's next film, which was Love Finds Andy Hardy. And so they were already pushing her to work harder and work as much as possible, getting as much out of her as they could. And there was no downtime for her. And even this appearance on Good News of 1938, she had just come back from a Seven City promotional tour for Everybody Sing. And this was the first time she had toured with, you know, big venues, adoring fans. She was the solo act, the big star, and it was exhilarating for her. And it was probably terrifying, <laughs> but it was also very uh, draining physically, even for this bubbly teenager that she was. She came back from that. She did this appearance on Good News of 1938. She's rushed off to do Love Finds Andy Hardy. She's already being announced as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on. And she would look back at that time, actually, and say it, the mixture of trying to get time in with her tutor, trying to get time in with everything that she had to do. She said, my life was a combination of absolute chaos and absolute solitude. It, it's always that kind of sad lining to her life and career that is somewhat omnipresent. But uh, I'm grateful that we have these performances from her. I wish they could have treated her 
her with a little more deference as far as her health and her what what was good for her. And I think she probably changed for the better the way child stars have been treated. It seems to be getting better with each generation. So it might be a little bit of a debt to be paid to her in that regard as well. So anyway, again, three completely different performances. It's like three different women singing here. <laughs> so enjoy all three. Hopefully Baby Snooks doesn't annoy you like she does me. And hopefully you will just be mesmerized by crying for the Carolines. So I, I hope you enjoy this. It's a, it's a good Judy-filled episode. And here's little Judy Garland, a new star singing an old favorite, crying for the Carolines. Sing it pretty, Judy. Far, far away, there's seldom any. 
Maxwell House Coffee presents Good News of 1938. The makers of Maxwell House Coffee from the Metro Golden Mayor Studios in Hollywood invite you to join our Easter party here on Stage 30. Where this afternoon, Clark Gable, Myrna Loy, and Spencer Tracy were shooting the final scene for Test Pilot, MGM's thrilling drama of aviation. Now the sets have been changed for our broadcast, and the scenic department has helped us in creating an atmosphere of Easter time at the old Maxwell House with our gracious host, Robert Taylor. Thanks, Ted, and good evening, everybody. Well, it kind of looks like the good old Easter Bunny has really brought us a grand basket of entertainment tonight. Such good eggs as Florence Rice, Freddie Bartholomew, Bernard McFadden, Judy Garland, MGM Style King Adrian, Fanny Bryce, Hanley Stafford, and that slightly cracked egg Frank Morgan. Not to mention Meredith Wilton and his rhythmic chicks, who right now will cluck out with their special Easter arrangement of It Seems to Be Spring. <laughs> for a session with that tantalizing, teasing, tot baby Snooks. She has returned from a visit to her Uncle Louie in New York, and her father, played by Hanley Stafford, is rather upset by a letter he has just received. Enter Fanny Bryce as Baby Snooks. Mother, come here. Yes, dear? Did you read this letter from Uncle Louie? Yes, I did. Now, please. Oh, that child is impossible. I'm not going to be lenient with her any longer. Now, don't lose your temper. You must remember she's only a baby. Baby? Why, the thing she did to poor Louie, it's, it's incredible. The day before she left, he says she set fire to the living room curtains. And she swore to me she'd been a good girl. Now, listen, dear. Maybe if you try to be more patient with her, she'll admit all these things and see how wrong she is. Well, all right. 
I'll try a different kind of psychology. That's fine. And remember, if you feel your temper slipping, just try the good old-fashioned method of counting up to ten. Okay, okay. I'll send Snooks in. One, two, three, four, five, six. Set fire to the curtains. Oh. Hello, Daddy. Oh. Hello, Snooks. Come in here with Daddy. Huh? There's something I'd like to ask you. I didn't set fire to Uncle Louis' curtains. I didn't say anything about Uncle Louis' curtains. Oh. Did Uncle Louis say anything? We'll get to that in a minute, Snooks. Snooks, come sit near Daddy, darling. I don't want to. Well, why not? Because you're too nice. Well, Snooks, I'm quite sure you had a wonderful time in New York. Didn't you? Did I? <laughs> and I know you were a perfect angel at Uncle Louis, weren't you? Was I? <laughs> Stop answering my questions with a question. Why? One, two, three, four. What you five. doing, Daddy? Nothing, nothing at all. Now, Snooks, I want to talk about your trip to New York. Now? Yes, now. We already talked about it. I know we did, but I just got a letter from Uncle Louis. Daddy. What is it? I have to go upstairs and do my homework. Your homework will wait. Now, according to Uncle Louis' letter... <laughs> what are you crying about? It ain't true. What isn't true? I didn't put the mousetrap in his bed. Nobody said you did. Didn't Uncle Louis say that in his letter? I know. Then he didn't go to bed yet. <laughs> oh... So now it's coming out. Snooks, I promised Mother I wouldn't lose my temper with you. Huh? You, you little one, two, three. I, I, I ought to turn you over on your four, five, six and give you a sound eight, nine, ten. <laughs> now, what are you laughing at? <laughs> you forgot seven. <laughs> well, I won't forget anything next time. Now, I want to know exactly what happened while you were in New York. You mean when the eggs got smashed in Uncle Louie's pocket? Eggs? Did you put them there? No. Then where did the eggs come from? From the chicken. Never mind about that. What else did you do? Ain't that enough? <laughs> Snooks, I want a full confession of what you did to make Uncle Louis so angry. Is he angry? Oh, no. He's going to send you a cake for wrecking his clothes and setting fire to his curtains. Why? Because you drove him so crazy, he probably thinks that's good. You think you'll send me a box of candy, too? What for? We're throwing the silverware down the sewer. Oh, I can't control myself any longer. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Oh, there. Why'd you count like that, Daddy? It's it's the only way I can control my temper and stop from giving you a spanking. Ah. All right. I'm calm now. Now, listen, Snooks. There'll be absolutely no trouble if you'll start from the beginning and tell me everything that happened. All right, Daddy. Remember, everything. It was Cousin Shirley's fault. What was Cousin Shirley's fault? She took half of my cat. Half of your cat? Uh-huh. What on earth are you talking about? Well, Uncle Louis said the cat was for both of us. Yes. So Shirley took the front end, and I took the back end. Well, <clears throat> I, I guess there's nothing wrong with that. And didn't you play nicely together? Sure, but Uncle Louie got mad when the cat made a noise. 
Why did the cat make a noise? Of course, I pulled its tail, but it was Shirley's fault. If you pulled its tail, how could it have been Shirley's fault? Well, I only pulled my end, but her end hollered. <laughs> Ye gods, that's the limit. I, I'm... Count, Daddy, count. What do you think of I see ten? Oh. You feel better? Never mind how I feel. I've told you time and again to be kind to dumb animals. You should never pull a cat's tail. He was a nasty cat, Daddy. Oh, what do you mean, nasty? Did he scratch you? No, he didn't have good manners. The cat didn't have good manners? No, he kept spitting on his feet and wiping it on his face. <laughs> well, that's the way a cat washes. Now, let's forget about the cat. Just tell me why Uncle Louie is so angry with you. He ain't angry, Daddy. Oh, no? No, he's going to have me visit him next Christmas. Well, what makes you think so? Because I heard him say it to Aunt Sophie. What did he say? He said it'll be a cold day the next time I let Snooks in my house. Ladies and gentlemen, now that Judy Garland is back with us, we're in a position to satisfy the enormous demand you people have been making to hear Judy and baby Snooks do their song from Everybody Sing. So here they are, Judy and Snooks singing Why Because. I've been reading books. Well, put your books away. And let's go out and play. Why? Because. Why? Because. I don't want to. Well, you ought to. Let's play cops and crooks. I want to read my book. Don't be a baby, Snooks. <laughs> Snooks, you mustn't cry. You're too big to cry. Why? Because. Why? Because. Grown-ups never cry. I saw Mommy cry. You did? Uh-huh. The time my Mommy saw my Daddy kiss the nice goodbye. <laughs> Look. What? Can you do a sum? No, she taught me sum. Look, how much is two and two? Two and two is two and two. Two and two are four. Why? Because. Why? Because. One and one are two. So two and two are more. So you mustn't weep. You're too big to weep. Why? Because. Why? Because big girls never weep. I saw Daddy weep. It is. Uh-huh. The time my mommy saw my daddy walking in his sleep. <laughs> is you a girl or boy? I've known this little Lord Fauntleroy. Oh. What's a little Lord Fauntleroy? Little Lord Fauntleroy is a little boy. Oh. Why? Because. Why? Because a girl's a girl and a boy's a boy. Well, what's a little Lord Fauntleroy? I told you twice. You told me what? I told you twice. You told me what? Oh, go back and read your books, because you're an awful You know, I guess it's true, at least it is in my home, that most men know what they like in coffee. And pretty often they say what they like, too. So tonight I'm going to say just a word or two on this point. It's this. If you haven't tried Maxwell House coffee lately, won't you get a pound tomorrow? Then serve it to your husband for a week. See if something like this doesn't happen in your home. 
I'm glad you like this Maxwell House coffee, dear. I thought perhaps you might. Perhaps? <laughs> There's no perhaps about it. This Maxwell House is a real cup of coffee. The kind of man likes. Boy, there's body to it and flavor. You know, you know you've had a cup of coffee. Yes, you'll find that Maxwell House is the kind of coffee men like. Because it's got everything that men want in coffee. A flavor that's mellow and rich. And with the full-bodied goodness that brings you a feeling of warmth and well-being. A deep-down, honest-to-goodness coffee satisfaction. That's what you get in a cup of Maxwell House coffee. And there are many reasons for it. Besides the goodness that's in this superb coffee. First, we offer Maxwell House in two grinds. The regular grind for percolator or boiled coffee, and a special drip grind for all methods of making drip coffee. And then we pack Maxwell House in that airtight super vacuum can that brings the coffee to you roaster fresh. And no coffee can be fresher than that. And don't forget, those of you who have large families, you can also buy Maxwell House coffee now in an economical two-pound can. <laughs> We present now a young man who is one of the most important people behind the scenes on our whole lot. You've seen his name on the screen hundreds of times as he is the brilliant designer who creates the gowns for the glamorous ladies who star in MGM productions. And since his picture dresses of today often set the styles for all America tomorrow, I know that many of you will be interested in meeting him. Here he is, the incomparable Adrian. Thank you, Don. Well, Adrian, now that now that you put in six or seven months on the costumes for Norma Shearer's new picture, Marie Antoinette, do you think 18th century costumes will become popular all over again? Well, I hardly think so. At least not as long as women drive their own cars. Now, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about dresses. What's the connection between cars and costume? Well, it's very simple, Bob. Imagine a girl in a skirt about eight feet in diameter with good, solid hopes to, hoops to hold it up, trying to shift gears in traffic. <laughs> yes, I see what you mean. She'd have trouble getting in a phone booth, too, wouldn't she? Absolutely. And if she did manage to get in, she'd very soon get tired of standing up because a dress would probably weigh 40 pounds. 40 pounds? Well, that is a lot of dress, Maestro. Analyze that for us, will you? Oh, half a dozen layers of heavy materials, a few pounds of brocade, a few square yards of silver ornament, 10 or 20 feet of hoops. It mounts up. Yes, I imagine a dress like that would run into money, too. How about that? Well, I should say that an elaborate evening gown of Marie Antoinette's time would cost from 10 to 15 times as much as an evening dress today. Such a dress could easily cost $2,500. Well, there's something modern husbands can be thankful for. That'd be a nice item on a bill. One dress, 2500 bucks. Yes, but of course, all these dresses were designed for a society far different from our own. In Antoinette's time, everyone was either very rich or very poor. Yes, that's true. I imagine Louis XVI could look at a bill like that and never bat an eye. But say, what about those fancy hairdresses I've seen all around the lot? Those beautifully powdered wigs. Aren't they from Antoinette, too? Yes. Well, do you think they have any chance to start a Vogue? Well, I really doubt it, Bob. It was hard enough for, for Marie to start the Vogue 200 years ago. Some of her headdresses were so high, they had to cut the tops out of carriages to make her comfortable. <laughs> and that would be pretty drafty in a limousine doing 40 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, tell me, Adrian, wasn't a little tough for Norma Sherry to get used to those 40-pound dresses and wigs three feet high? Well, it was difficult, Bob. In fact, she told me after her first day of fittings that she didn't think she'd be able to go through with the picture. But here's a funny thing. After a few weeks of working in the 18th century costumes, she told me she felt completely unnatural in modern clothes. Is that so? Well, just shows what the ladies can get used to if they try. It also shows what men can get used to, at least. The ladies do don't have mechanical windmills and mechanical flying birds on their hats today. Uh, let me have that again, please, will you? Well, in, in the 18th century, the women weren't satisfied with hairdresses three or four feet high. 
They decorated them with complete barnyard scenes with mechanical windmills and tiny mechanical cows and so on. With sound effects? Well, only an occasional scream when a lady's headdress ducked the top of a doorway. I can imagine. Well, it's nice to know that the insane hats of 1938 are not the farthest north in fashion's history. Well, Bob, I've got to be getting back to work. Oh, uh, Aiden, before you go, I wish you'd do me one favor. Sure, Bob. What is it? Well, the fellows on the program heard you were coming up here tonight, and we got into an argument which one was the best dress, you know. Uh, would you give us a style rating? Well, now, that's really not quite in my line, Bob. Oh, now, come on. We'll keep it strictly private. Well, all right. I'd say uh, offhand from a quick glimpse I got that the best dressed man here is undoubtedly Meredith Wilson. Oh. I... Of course, of course, you run him... You run him a very close second, Bob. In fact, I'd put you first, except I admire those beaver hats Meredith wears. Beaver hats? He doesn't wear any hats, Adrian. That's his hair. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, who would you rank third, Adrian? Hanley Stafford or Ted Pearson or... Just a minute. Uh, who are those two men talking over there? Oh, the, well, that's the janitor and Frank Morgan. Well, I'll give him third. What? You're giving third place to Frank Morgan? No, I'm at the janitor. Oh. Well, so long, Bob. See you later. <laughs> Thanks for coming over. Oh, uh, Judy. Yes, Mr. Taylor. Uh, Judy, last week you sang Sweetheart of Sigma Chi, and tonight I see your next number is College Swing. You going collegiate on us? Well, I'll be going to college pretty soon, you know. What? A little girl like you? Oh, no, I'm getting on in years, Mr. Taylor. What? I'll be 15 on my next birthday. Gee, 15. Getting to be a real old lady, huh? Can you still walk without a cane? <laughs> well, now you're just fooling, Mr. Taylor. <laughs> and this is a real serious problem with me. It's something to think about. Well, Judy, if that's your biggest problem, I hope you never have any bigger ones. And now, how's about college swing? Okay. All right, Professor W., swing it for Grandma Garland. <laughs> Thank you. 
Bob, how are you? Well, Frank, you're a little late this evening. Where have you been? Well, Bob, I had to send a cable to London on a question of international importance. Yeah, I'll bet it was important. What was it, Frank? Well, the Morning Post of London had asked me for a ten-word description of what I planned to wear in the Easter parade. Ten words? Did you cable them? Oh, sure I did. I said, silk hat, ascot tie, stiff shirt, coat, vest, pants, love Frank. (laughs) Sounds like quite a daring costume, Frank. Did you make that up yourself? Of course, Bob. In my day, I've died made more style history than any man alive. Wherever well-dressed men gather, at the Savoy in London, at the Waldorf in New York, the YMCA in Brooklyn, Morgan is the model. Taylor's dummy, huh? You are. Well, don't worry about it, Bobby. (laughs) Oh, Taylor's the dummy, sure. Clothes horse Morgan, they call me. (laughs) Who do you think started the vogue for patch pockets on underwear? Who invented vestless pajamas? Who do you think made two-pants suits acceptable to the 400? Morgan? Right. Why, I've been approached by the Restaurant Association. What for? Well, they want a new style for paper panties on lamb chops. (laughs) (laughs) And the title they wanted to confer on me, Frank Morgan, Couturier to the Stockyard. I never heard of such a title, Couturier to the Stockyard. Yes, well, you'll get the wind of it. (laughs) Frank, I don't believe a word of this. Uh, well, Bob, haven't you ever seen my wardrobe? I have 50 overcoats, 85 tuxedos, all colors, 92 dressing gowns, 75 pairs of slacks, and 129 street suits. 129 street suits? Yeah. Is that too many, Frank? Too many? Why, 35 of them are just for the moors. And, uh, <laughs> what high-class moors infest the Morgan closets, all pedigree. Now, uh, what are you giving me? Pedigreed moors. I yeah. suppose they go back to William the Conqueror. I wish they would. <laughs> <laughs> I've, uh, I've had the place exterminated three times. Well, it must be a great life, Frank, being a style leader. Oh, Bob, it's not all being Skittles. Uh, yesterday morning, as I was sitting at my breakfast table, I suddenly began to hear the buzz of conversation, although, apparently, I was alone. I looked around the room and found the voices were coming from under the table. From under the table? Yes, I heard one voice say, it's Shetland. Another voice said, it's Kashmir. Another voice said, you guys are crazy, it's brushed wool. Well, sir, I looked under the table, and there were three spies from Esquire examining my socks. Frank. Frank, that's awful. Awful? It was insulting. I wasn't wearing any socks. <laughs> but it'll probably start a vogue. Yes, <laughs> yes, I dare say. No, 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 no sarcasm, Bob. You have no idea what a well-dressed man goes through. All over the country, they copy my hats, my shirts, my shoes. I see, I see. Whatever you wear today becomes a nationwide rage tomorrow. Certainly, and if you don't believe it, listen to this. One day last March, I accidentally ripped the seat of my pants. And what do you think? What? Well, that's what started the sit-down strike. (laughs) Morgan, the style leader. Yeah, Frank, (laughs) you're just about the best-dressed fellow in the world, aren't you? Well, conservatively speaking, yes. Mm. Uh, what do you think of Meredith Wilson's clothes? Huh? Oh, Meredith, uh, Wilson, uh, Wilson. Yes, well, Meredith has quite good taste in an uncouth sort of a way. <laughs> uncouth? Frank, it might interest you to know that Adrian, the great style authority, rated Meredith Wilson the best-dressed man on this program. He rated me second, and you're not even in the money. Oh, I'm not, eh? Wilson, the best-dressed man. Oh, well, that's one I see standing in the middle of his wardrobe right now. <laughs> What's this? What's this? Oh, uh, that's it. Uh, oh, it's you, Meredith. <laughs> My, you're looking uh, 
Bruce today? Never mind that. I heard what you said, and when it comes to dressing, you can't hold a candle to me. Yeah, but now, don't misunderstand me, Darius. I think that you wear your clothes very well, such as they are. <laughs> now, wait a minute, Frank. Yes, What's the matter with this suit I'm wearing? Uh, well, I'll tell you. It's it's got a there's a it seems a little bulgy in the oh, around. Oh no, the... Frank. That's just because you're looking at me on the bias. Am I? But uh, <laughs> this is a beautiful suit. It cost me twenty two fifty. Twenty two fifty. Yep. And for that money, I got not only the suit but a shirt, necktie, hat, shoes, overcoat, socks, and a set of dishes. That's amazing. You walk into the store naked, and you come out the hit of the Easter parade. <laughs> Excuse me, is uh, Frank uh, Morgan here? Yeah, there Where he is, is, the stylish stout over there. Now, just quiet, Wilson. What is it, my lad? Well, are you uh, Mr. Morgan? Certainly. Uh, I'm from the downtown men's shop, and our board of directors has decided that in view of uh, your style leadership, you uh, should be presented with this medal in token of our... Uh, gratitude. Well, I'll be... Oh, you are. <laughs> now, what have you got to say, fellas? Well, uh, there's a little uh, inscription on the medal, Mr. Morgan, if you, you'd care to read it. Well, I certainly would. I'll fix Mr. Adian once and for all. Read the medal. All right. It says... Uh, oh, let me see. This medal is presented to Frank Morgan in recognition of his sartorial splendor by the downtown men's shop. Stores conveniently located near... Car lines in Pasadena, Glendale, Hollywood, and Los Angeles. You cannot beat our prices on all lines of fancy haberdashery, men's suits, slacks, and underwear, small down payments, accepted easy terms. Holy smoke, is all that on the metal? Well, now, just wait a minute. I'll see. It says on the other side. Here, uh, for confidential arrangements, see Mr. Grabs, our credit manager. Don't forget our anniversary sale every Wednesday starts at 8 a.m. <laughs> That's a fine metal. Oh, here, there's more. It says, P.S., bring this medal with you and get our 5% honor bonus discount. <laughs> well, isn't that a lovely sentiment? I'll treasure this to my dying day. In the meantime, I've got to go down to Smiling Frankie's and pay 50-cent installment on my new vest. <laughs> so long. <laughs> And again, we come to the interlude devoted to that pleasant custom of ours on these Thursday nights, a steaming, fragrant cup of Maxwell House coffee. That's right, Robert. And from letters we're receiving, we know that in many homes across the country, folks actually are joining us in this custom, enjoying a cup of Maxwell House coffee as they sit before their radios, sharing in the fun we're having on good news. So here we go. Let's pour out the coffee. Meredith, how about pouring out a little of that mellow music that goes so well with the roaster-rich flavor of this coffee? That's good to the last drop. We pause now for station identification. KFI Los Angeles. Bob Taylor again, and we continue our Maxwell House program with a medley of two of the amazingly popular tunes from Walt Disney's amazingly popular picture, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs.
Turning to our dramatic department, tonight's playlet is a drama of the sea called The Hebrides, written by Irving Reese. Our cast for The Hebrides includes Hanley Stafford, and as our leading lady, one of MGM's finest younger players seen most recently in Navy Blue and Gold, and with Frank Morgan in Paradise for Three, the gracious and charming Miss Florence Rice. And now, Meredith, a little scene setting, please. Night on the Mid-Pacific. Tilted at the crazy angle, the SS Hebrides rocks gently on the calm, moonlit sea. Huddled on the sloping foredeck, a silent group of passengers, life preservers around them, reach frightened eyes into the night. Midship, apart from the group, are Enid Houston, played by Florence Rice, and Bob Larrabee, played by Robert Taylor. They are talking. Everything seems to have quieted down. It's all like part of a nightmare. I'll wake up in a minute and be frightened. We'll come through all right. It's the stillness. If there were only a gale or a pounding sea, it would seem real. But it doesn't seem possible that we're on a sinking ship. Why do they keep sounding that ghastly horn? The wireless operator told my husband there wasn't a ship within 800 miles. A lot of small freighters don't carry wireless. There's always a possibility that one may hear it. It's so still between blasts. In silent requiem. Do you remember? Yes. You recited it for me the first night we met on board. Say it again, please. In this half-hush before the dawn, no gull on wings gives cry. Dipping in silent requiem to the hour... Finish it. I've forgotten the rest. No, no, you haven't. But I remember it all. In this this half-hush before the dawn, no gull on wings gives cry. Dipping in silent requiem to the hour... When men must die. Oh, Bob. Oh, come on now. We're all right, really. Forgive me. Just for a second, I felt... No, no, it was nothing. Where's Lloyd? Writing. The wireless man told him he let him get 500 words through for his paper. I don't think I could bother with a story at a time like this. Oh, but you see, it's his whole life. He's gotten so used to a world of exaggerated headlines, it just doesn't seem possible that there is a world of reality. He should be here by your side, I suppose. Oh, it doesn't matter. I've had five years of training alone. Enid! Enid! He's calling you now. Enid! Oh, here you are, darling. Hello, Larrabee. Thanks for watching over the little woman. <laughs> Duty before devotion, you know. Well, I got it, darling. I got the captain's permission to radio 500 words to the syndicate. Boy, what a yarn. I just finished it. Listen to it, will you? I'm calling it Staring Death in the Face on the Pacific. Here it is. Hello, folks. This is your adventure-hunting globe-girdler Lloyd Houston. Well, I told you this old headline horse would end up in harness someday, and it looks like that day is here. While you calmly read these words at breakfast, your old adventure-hunter is staring death smack in the eye on the Pacific. <laughs> Will that make their eyes pop? Yes, sir, the ship taking your reporter to the Chinese warfront may never get there. This is probably my last adventure. For you know, because there's no cable from Davy Jones's locker, I report from there. Is that a line, or is that a line? But wait a minute, you haven't heard anything yet. Yes, folks, your globe-girdler ship is listing heavily to port. Caused by an accidental shift of cargo. We're sailing through a calm tropical night. But the slightest breeze may capsize us. And the nearest ship is 800 miles away. Well, folks, death may reach your old boat girdler. Stop it, please. Why? What's the matter, honey? Don't you like my yarn? No, no. I, I like it all right, but, well, perhaps you ought to send it right off. Oh, yeah, right you are. 
This has got to make the morning edition. Well, so long, Larrabee. Goodbye, honey. See you when it's finished. Watch the little woman, Larrabee, will you? Is it true about the flight of three? Oh, no, I don't think it's quite that bad. I'd rather know, Bob. We're at the limit of our normal swaying angle. If we tilt any more... I know. And dawn on the Pacific always brings a breeze. But this one hour... We have that anyway. Oh, darling, darling, please don't. Enid. Oh, Bob. I'm sorry. Forgive me. No, no. Don't go. Hold me close, darling. Yes, dear. There's so little time left for pretending now. I love you, Enid. I've loved you from the first second I saw you. I knew life would be meaningless without you from that moment. It doesn't matter if death brings us together. You're mine now. Oh, my darling, I love you so. I do love you so. I'm glad all this happened. We might never have known. We might have passed and gone on. Yes. Loyalty. But they go in the face of death like, like mist in a high wind. I'm not afraid of death now. Neither am I. With you near me, darling, death and night have no meaning. But we're going to live. We must live. No. No, it's better this way. If we came through... Well, I'd go on with Lloyd. But you couldn't. You love me. And he needs me. But not for much longer. So this hour is mine. We belong to each other. It's funny. I dreamed all my life it would happen this way someday. But it didn't. And I, I put it out of my mind. And now it has happened. For an hour. And nothing else matters if we come through. The dawn's breaking. Darling, I must know. Promise me you'll tell me if we come through. It's getting chilly. Promise me, Enid. The breeze is starting. Stand by to abandon ship. You haven't answered. Oh, my dearest, please. I only know I love you. Nothing can change that. Nothing. Only only stay close to me now. They're abandoning ship. We'll be separated soon, Enid. This can't be the end. No matter where we meet again, you must tell me that. You must tell me. Enid! Enid! Enid, quick, down to the foredeck. They're abandoning ship. I'm staying here, Lloyd. But you can't, honey. We might capsize any second. My mind's made up, Lloyd. I'm staying here. But you're crazy. The ship's sinking, I tell you. You've got to go. Please don't shout, Lloyd. I'm quite sane. I've put your wishes before mine for five years. I think I've earned the right to these last few minutes as I wish them. Let her be. Will you please tell her to go? She doesn't know what she's doing. You'd better go, Enid. No, no, no. Please, please. Can't you see? I want to stay here. Officer, officer. What is it? What's wrong here? My wife won't go to the lifeboats. Will you please talk to her? You better hurry at the foredeck, madam. I'm staying here. Oh, she's mad. Get her out of here. Get her off the boat. Madam, the ship is sinking. There's no time to argue. All right, now, come on. Don't you dare. Come on. Put me down. Put me down. Darling, stop him. Don't let him take me, darling. Please. Oh, please, darling. I want to stay with you. Oh, my God. Well, buck up, Larrabee, old man. Imagine how I feel. You know, it takes a moment like this to make us realize... How much someone cares for us. Yes. Doesn't it? And here's little Judy Garland, a new star singing an old favorite, crying for the Carolines. Sing it, pretty Judy. Oh. 
with glory vine. Anyone can see what's troubling me. I'm crying for the Caroline. How can I smile, mile after mile? There's not a bit of green here. Birdies all stay far, far away. There's seldom ever seen here. Where is the one that I used to meet down where the pale moon shines? Anyone can see what's troubling me. I'm crying for the There's something I've been milling over in my mind for a long time. I see. Sort of aged in the wood, huh? Yes, I've got... No, uh, I'm serious. It's about this program. We've been neglecting the educational angle. We should do things that are really worthwhile. Yeah, for instance? Well, for instance, take history. We could... Frank, uh, what do you know about history? What do I know? Bob, you're looking at one of the ablest historians of our day. (laughs) I have scouts hiding in all the libraries just picking up data. And uh, a few telephone numbers on the side. (laughs) Your scouts dig up anything good today, Frank? They certainly did, Bob. Now, uh, don't let this get out, but do you know what George Washington's men said to him when they crossed the Delaware? No. What'd they say, Frank? They said, sit down, George, you're rocking the boat. (laughs) You see? You could ask me anything. Morgan, the historian, huh? Well, now, let's see. Uh, All right, what happened in 1812? In 1812. Wow! What a wild party. I know. I was right next door in 1810. There was a little blonde who kept... (laughs) 
Frank, stop it. What? 1812 was the year Napoleon retreated from Moscow. Oh, yes, of course. I remember just as it happened yesterday, Napoleon. He said to me, Frank, oh, Frank I want... Oh, Frank, what are you talking about? That uh, was 126 years ago. For hell, how time flies. <laughs> Say, Bob, that's quite a coincidence you're mentioning Napoleon. You know my little nephew. Yeah, the one who writes those crazy sketches? Yes. Well, don't tell me he's Napoleon. No, 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 Bob, don't be silly. <laughs> His brother's Napoleon. Napoleon Morgan. We call him Nappy for short. Sometimes when we're in a hurry, we just call him plain Nap. Yeah. <laughs> well, I must save quite a bit of time. Yeah. Uh, but, Frank, uh, what's your nephew got to do with history? Well, that's what I've been leading up to in my subtle way. My nephew has written a play all about Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh-huh. You play Napoleon, I suppose. Well, I'm certainly not the type for Josephine. <laughs> that reminds me. Oh, uh, Fanny. Yeah, yeah. Fanny, can you do a French dialect? Yeah, we've been a Yeah. Well, that's splendid. You play the part of Josephine, my wife. Is there a part for me? Certainly. You're my chancellor. Now, let's see. uh, What was his name? Uh, Talleyrand. Oh, a fan dancer? No. (laughs) Not Talleyrand. Talleyrand. Oh. (laughs) Well, I still like the fan dancer idea. I've got that. Oh, yes. Wilson, you're just in time. I have a great character part for you. A character part? Say, that's great. Yes, you're a musician for a change. (laughs) (laughs) You're uh, you're the leader of Napoleon's army band. Do we swing? Yes, at the finish. We hang you and six saxophone players. (laughs) Now, Bob, you just read the introduction just as my nephew has it written there. Yeah, okay. Uh, When the curtain goes up, there is Josephine, the emperor's wife in the castle. Talleyrand is approaching her. All alone, I'm so all alone. All alone, I'm so all alone. Oi, am I alone? Ah, Your Highness. Ah, looks like I'm not alone. Hello, Talleyrand. How goes with you? Oh. I'm glad you're feeling better, Philly. What do you hear from Napoleon? He's not doing so well with the Russians, Your Highness. They're losing. But good. Ah, uh, that's good. <laughs> ah, that must be Napoleon now. Back from the battle. The horse, the horse. Click, Sally ran the window. Where's my son? Yes. Yes, here they come. They're a mile and a half away. Now they're a mile away. At the three quarters. And here comes Napoleon on the outside. On stage hand. Now he's at the castle gate. He's in the courtyard. He's running up the stairs. Coming up in his stocking feet. And here he is now. Open the door. Open it. It's me, Sappy. Uh, Nappy. Ah, <laughs> oh, Napoleon. Oh, Josephine. Ah, oh, Nappy. Oh, Josie. Yeah, oh, Nappy. Ah, Nappy. Nappy, what up to real? I wasn't expecting you till Monday. And here it is only Saturday. And you're home already, my little sappy potato. Oh, is today Saturday? Yeah, all day. Goody, goody. Tomorrow, funny papers. (laughs) (laughs) You certainly are sight for sore articles, ma chérie. You haven't changed a bit. I see you're still wearing your hair sideways. Yes, military strategy, my dear. The enemy never knows which way I'm going. <laughs> How did you fare in the battle with the Russians, my sweet Rue de la Paix? 
What a struggle, my toot sweet. Freezing weather and terrific odds against us. But that's where this little corporal's military strategy came to the fore. Uh, my Romeo. <laughs> Romeo, I'm Napoleon, remember? Oh, yeah. Hey, wait a minute. What happened, Nappy? I called my staff of officers to my barracks and lashed out with orders left and right. I sent 100,000 men to flank the left front by way of Schmetna on the Volga. We're going to fall. Another 50,000 men to flank the right front by way of Shika on the Schnapp. We're going to fall. Then I started my big offense. The infantry, the artillery, the yeah. cavalry, uh-huh. the machine gunners, uh-huh. the uh-huh. bean shooters uh-huh. were all brought into action. Uh-huh. Yeah. With my usual stroke of genius, I maneuvered my men into position so that we were completely surrounded by the enemy. Then into the valley of death I rode, leading my gay little band of 600 Cossacks. And as we attacked, we sang, All our loggish love game. All our loggish love game. Wait a minute. You were leading the 600 Cossacks? Uh, well, yes, in a way. They were chasing me. <laughs> but there again, I outsmarted them. I escaped by disguising myself with a clean shirt and a beard. Then I swam the English Channel, and here I am. You mean you lost 150,000 men? Well, I didn't exactly lose them. We were in Siberia, and I just left them there in cold storage. Well, we will And again, Meredith Wilson brings you a tune you didn't expect to hear. The unforgettable Whistler and his dog. Now my pleasant privilege to deliver to you for a brief interrogation the charming Florence Rice, who gave us that grand performance tonight. Oh, that's nice of you, Robert, and very gracious of you, Florence. Well, I don't even need my woman's intuition to tell me what you're going to ask, Ted. But quite frankly, I guess when it comes to coffee, it's about the same with me as with Una Merkel and lots of my friends here in Hollywood. I've always enjoyed good coffee. And when this good news program started, I naturally tried Maxwell House. I liked it a lot, and again, naturally... Yes? I began to use Maxwell House coffee in my home. I do quite a lot of entertaining, Ted, and I've noticed something. 
I wonder if you have too. And that is that men in particular seem to enjoy Maxwell House. At least I've had more compliments on my coffee lately. Do you know something, Ted? I suspect... Yes, Florence, you suspect what? Well, I suspect that the way to a man's heart may be through a cup of coffee. Maxwell House preferred. And I suspect you're right, Florence. And I further suspect that may be a valuable hint to women everywhere. Because Maxwell House is a real man's coffee. Yes, friends, as Florence Rice says, men do like the extra smooth, rich, full-bodied goodness of Maxwell House coffee. The feeling of warmth and well-being it brings. It's friendly stimulation that buoys you up and never lets you down. So if you haven't tried this superb coffee lately, why don't you get a pound of Maxwell House, Maxwell House tomorrow, won't you? We join Meredith Wilson in the concert hall, where the lights have been dimmed to a prism of soft pastel shades and shadows to accentuate the mood for the rendition of Fritz Kreisler's immortal classic, the most beloved melody ever written for the violin, Caprice Viennois. personal, I've always admired your physical prowess. With all your responsibilities, I had no idea you could retain that youth and vitality all these years. Thank you again. May I say that you're a pretty good specimen yourself, Bob. <laughs> Thank you. 
yourself, Bob. <laughs> Thank you. And now, Mr. McFadden, here is Freddie Bartholomew. How do you do, Mr. McFadden? How do you do, Freddie? It is indeed a real pleasure meeting you. Well, thank you, sir. It's a real pleasure meeting you. Mr. McFadden has come here tonight especially to talk to you, Freddie. Yes, Freddie, for 17 years, since uh, 1920, the readers of Photoplay magazine have selected what they believe to be the best motion picture of the year. In our latest poll, you was one of the uh, stars in the winning picture selected by millions of Photoplay readers. And so, Freddie, I want to present to you this year's photo play medal for Captain Courageous, the outstanding picture of 1937. Well, thank you very much, Mr. You know, I really wasn't responsible at all for the success of the picture. It was all due to Spencer Tracy and the others. You're mistaken uh, there, Freddie. You were, your work was beautifully done. I congratulate you. You're indeed a clever young trooper. Well, thank you, sir. You know, that makes our respect for each other mutual. I understand that you, too, are interested in physical culture. Yes, I dabble in it sometimes. <laughs> but I didn't know that you followed anything of that kind. Oh, yes, sir. At 14 years of age, I still possess the same youthful vigor and the same vital interest in life as I did at seven. <laughs> Remarkable indeed. But I'll tell you what. Uh, we'll give you a little more time, say about ten years, and then I'll challenge you to a wrestling match. And on the, uh, we'll determine then which, is, uh, which system of health is the best. Well, I shall start training immediately. And as for the wager, uh, let me think. I think I could manage up to the sum of uh, hmm, 15, 16, 17. Yes, 17 cents. You understand, sir, the recession and everything. <laughs> Done, my boy. Cheerio. Until then, Master Bartholomew. And as we say in America, Mr. McFadden, I'll be seeing you, pal. <laughs> and really, in behalf of everyone concerned, thank you for the wonderful award. Next week, we're going to have another great show, ladies and gentlemen, that I'm sure you won't want to miss. All your regular favorites will be here. Excuse me, Bob. Yes. Here's a message just came for you. Oh, thanks, Ed. Say, listen to this. In addition to our regular cast, next week, we're going to do a preview of Test Pilot with Clark Gable, Myrna Loy, and Lionel Barrymore. What a show that's going to be. Fanny Bryce and Hanley Stafford, Frank Morgan, Judy Garland, Meredith Wilson, plus these stars of Test Pilot. Be sure you don't miss it. Your ticket of admission is just your loyalty to Maxwell House Coffee. So... Enjoy yourself with us next Thursday, and in the meantime, go to the movies and take the family with you. This is Bob Taylor saying good night. See you next Thursday. Third on tonight's program, the college swing from the picture of the same name. Ted Pearson saying good night and good luck for the makers of Maxwell House, the coffee that's always good for the last show. The National Broadcasting Company. KFI Los Angeles. Serving fish tomorrow? Then add Lucky Lager beer to the menu. <laughs>